Good morning, guys. My name is Michael, like Drew just said, and I help out here with our student ministries. Um, my wife and I love it. We have such a blast getting to serve kind of the next generation of followers of Jesus and some of the upcoming leaders in the church. We love it. And um, today, I have the privilege of opening up God's Word and sharing it with you guys. But before we jump in, I kind of have a confession to make. Um, I'm sarcastic. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Whoever said that was beautiful, right? I, I'm sarcastic. I'm sorry. Um, I have issues. I know. It's, it's bad. Um, I, I don't even know when it started. I think if I try to think back to my childhood, I was probably eight or nine, and I became sarcastic, and then it just stuck to the point at which I don't even know when I'm being sarcastic or when I'm not. Um, it's great for marriage and relationships. I, if you guys want, we're going to offer a sarcasm class next week. I'll be teaching. Just kidding. So sarcasm is kind of a bummer, um, and it can get in the way of a lot of things. And part of the issue with sarcasm is what can happen is, is we become negative and cynical about things to where we almost can't find joy in just kind of the things that we're facing, the things that we are encountering on a daily basis. Uh, I know for me, one of the things it was was when, when I started dating my wife when, when, uh, before we got married, I realized that we had very different tastes when it comes to TV entertainment. Very different. Movies, all that kind of stuff. Um, she likes this thing called the BBC. You guys know what that is in here? All right. The BBC. Some of you men are like twitching already for what's about to happen. I, I was, when I first came into contact with this BBC thing, I couldn't handle it. I was like, this is ridiculous. Okay. Like, I get that there's accents and they're cute or whatever, but like make it stop. And she would say, no, like this is great. Let's watch it. And so we'd sit down and watch. And the strangest thing happened. Okay. It started to wear on me. I started to like it, okay? It's crazy. We started watching this show called The Great British Baking Show. You guys know what I'm talking about? Mmm, so good, so good. It's this kind of reality TV show where you have these people that get together, they make stuff, and the weirdest thing about it is that they're nice to each other. It's, th- it's so weird. They're like, oh, good job on that bake. That was great. You're in a competition, right? You're supposed to win. It's ridiculous. But I get a kick out of it to the point now where I'm asking her to watch it. We got like six seasons to go. I'm ready to hit it, right? Can we watch it? She said, no, uh, Avengers tonight, please. Somehow it flipped. But here's the thing. If I would have let like my cynicism and sarcasm and issues that I have get in the way, I would have missed out on one of my favorite shows and one of my favorite things to do in the grocery store, which is say, look at this Les. It's great. <laughs> But I would have missed out on it. And here's the issue. I think for us, whether it's cynicism or, or maybe it's just a general sense of negativity, maybe it's pessimism where you just think that everything's not going to work out. Maybe it's perfectionism where you just, it has to be right for you and nothing's ever quite good enough and the hair isn't right, your job isn't right, your kids aren't right. These things that we kind of cling to, what can happen is, is they become defeat for us, okay? They begin to defeat our joy. And what I've noticed, at least in my own heart, is that when I'm given to sarcasm, when I'm given to cynicism, I begin to experience defeat in my life in the sense of this. I look at something that God's doing, maybe in my life, and I just chalk it up to coincidence, or I chalk it up to accident. And I miss out on what he's doing in the midst of everyday stuff that we experience all the time. 
And that can be true of any of those things we talked about. And maybe, maybe if you're in here today and you're a happy person, I'm glad you're here. I need you in my life, okay? And what we experience, though, even if you're filled with joy most of the time, we've probably been in a place where we've experienced a sense of defeat. And what we see in the text this morning is that that experience of defeat can get in the way of seeing that Jesus is really real, like really real. And that's Luke's main point of the story as he kind of works through the text we're going to look at. He's recounting a story that happens to the disciples where Jesus is going to show up to them. And he's going to show up in a very unique way. But what's interesting is he's already done it like four times. But they're still confused about what's happening. And so my hope for us today, kind of as we walk through this text, as we look at it, is that whatever sense of defeat you've walked in here with today, it may be a job loss, it may be marital strife, it may be an issue with kids, it may be whatever it is that you're experiencing. My prayer is that you would see that you could have victory in the midst of that defeat through the risen Jesus who can turn those things, our failures, into good things that can actually bring us joy and bring him joy. So we're going to read the text together and then we'll pray. It says in Luke 24, 36, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything to eat here? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it with them. So God, we come before you this morning um, just humble and looking to hear from you, looking to, to receive from your word in a way that only you, Spirit, can do. Only you can speak through this in a way that, that I, I'm totally incapable of. And so I pray today that you would, you would just speak to your people through this text and they would see you as really real and someone that they can put their whole life on. And so Jesus, we thank you that you're faithful to do that. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Everybody said, amen. So let's catch up a bit to where we're at in the gospel of Luke. Three days ago, Jesus died on a cross. It was the most gruesome death anybody could have ever imagined in their time. The things that he went through were heinous. And the pain and hurt that he experienced on the cross, what he did in that is one perfect life atoned for all the debt of mankind. Everything that we owed from our rebellious nature in rejecting the Father, every hurt that we cause others, every hurt that's been done to us, it was made right in the cross at that moment. We were forgiven. And it's entrusting in that that we have a relationship with God. You see, God took his wrath out on Jesus, making a pact with himself, making a new promise, so that that could be a new reality. And so, three days later, Jesus rises from the dead, and he has already started to appear to people. We know that there was a group of women who went to his tomb to kind of to do some, some, uh, some dressings on, on his body, and he wasn't there. He had disappeared. And what happens is this lady named Mary Magdalene, she ends up seeing a gardener. Like the gardener's just kind of doing his thing. She's like, kind of takes a double look. And he's like, why are you sad? And then he reveals to her that he's Jesus. He shows up as a gardener. And then he leaves there, shows up to Peter. 
And he also shows up to these men on the road to Emmaus. There was this guy named Cleopas and some friend who was with him, and they were walking toward Emmaus, this no-name town, this random destination, and God had a detour in plan for them. He showed up, and he began to talk to them. They had no clue it was him. Right? And they get to the place that they were going, and finally when they break bread together, they begin to eat together, they realize it's Jesus. And they're like, no way, what, what's happening? And then Jesus disappears. And then after he disappears, what happens is these guys, they're like, we got to go tell somebody. And so they start running back to Jerusalem. In the, in the Gospel of Luke, it says it took an hour. So they were running 7.0 on the treadmill, all right? Bless them. I can't do that. All right, some of you in here can, I cannot. They're bolting back and they get back and they find the disciples huddled in a locked room. They were hiding in a locked room because they were afraid of what was going to happen to them. You see, the Jewish rulers and leaders, they had just killed their hero. They had just killed their rabbi. And now they're afraid that that might happen to them. So they're hiding in this, in this small room. And they're talking about these things. That's what these things are. All these events leading up to it. And if we were to take a quick inventory, we would see that Jesus has at least appeared four times to people at this moment. And yet they're still confused. They're still unsure It says they're talking about these things. It doesn't say that they're acting upon these things. They're talking about it. And I think the problem here, I think the reason why they're stuck talking about it is because they've allowed their defeat to kind of become a barrier to their ability to see what it is that God was doing. They missed it. They're sitting there weighed down by some of their defeat. And here's here's what they had experienced. These men and some women had betrayed Jesus. They left him in his moment of of deepest need, in his moment of most pain. All of them except for one had left. And they're sitting here saying, could this even be true? We thought it was over. We thought he was the one. But maybe he wasn't, or maybe he is. And you can sense this idea of confusion mixed with this emotional like dissonance that's happening. And as they're having this conversation, I, I love what Jesus does. He just, poof, right into the room, in the middle of them. In a locked room. Like, come on, you can't say God doesn't have a sense of humor. That's pretty funny. They're talking about him and then just shows up. I wish I had that power. That'd be pretty fun. And people are talking about you, just like right in there. Don't say pranks aren't biblical, right? It's a real thing. I'm kidding. But on a more serious note, what's interesting is what he says to them when he shows up. He shows up and he says, peace to you. Isn't that exactly what they needed? Isn't that exactly the word they needed in that situation? And he spoke it right into their lives. He says, peace to you. It's, and they don't even understand the theological weight of what just happened. He made peace with the Father. He made peace for us on our behalf by suffering this brutal death on the cross and then beating sin and death by rising again bodily so that you and I today in 2018 might have new life. They might be able to find joy in him and not settle for less. They don't understand the weight of the peace that's been brought by Jesus. And what's also interesting is what he doesn't say. Remember, right, they, they just left him when he was going through these trials, when he was being beaten, when he was nailed to the cross. They left him. But Jesus doesn't say, hey, remember how you guys left me? He doesn't say, you're in for it. We had a plan. You didn't stick to it. What's wrong with you? 
He didn't look at them and come down on them like they may have kind of deserved to. But instead, when he very well could have otherwise done something different, he says, peace to you. He says, he's proclaiming this reality, this new reality of what has been made between him and the Father on our behalf. But they were in doubt and disbelief, right? They couldn't see it because of their defeat. And we know that because they freaked out. Now, to be fair, I would freak out too. If I was talking about Jesus and he poofed right there, I was like, whoa, what's going on? So he shows up and they're still frightened. It's the same word that's used at the beginning of chapter 24 when the women go to the tomb. They're frightened as well. Luke is tying together this idea that people weren't quite understanding what was happening, and it's because they didn't have a category for it. They didn't know how to process it. Like, but I thought you, and didn't that, and what? And there's this confusion that's happening. I can imagine at this moment that they may be feeling even more emotional pain as they look on him, and they realize, like, can I even look you in the eye? Can I even talk to you? Do I even deserve this right now? There's a weight that's, that's there. And yet Jesus, here's what he does. He lifts that weight for them. He says, peace to you. He says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. He taught that before. And he's gonna show that to them right there in front of them. And he's gonna do this amazing thing with them that nobody else is really gonna get to do until glory. I love this. Check this out. He says, while they were startled and frightened, this is what happens. He looks at them and he says, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? What's wrong? Don't you believe I'm right? I'm right here. I'm present. I'm in front of you. I'm right in this place with you. But they couldn't see through their defeat. And they had experienced some defeat, right? The sense of betrayal, maybe their own sense of perfection, saying, I thought I would, I thought I would do the right thing like Peter, but then he doesn't. Maybe there's weight there. Maybe some of them are becoming cynics at this point. Or think, oh man, I don't even know if any of that worked for the last three years. What's going to happen? And yet he says, why do you doubt? Why is that arising in your heart? And then invites them into something really special. He says, see my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Look at me. Hear me. I'm not a ghost. (laughs) I'm not a spirit. I'm real. And I'm really here. And then he takes them one step deeper. Beyond hearing beyond seeing, and he says, touch me. Is anybody else's mind blown by that? (laughs) The risen Lord is standing in front of them, and then he invites them to touch him, to experience him on a new level. And so he says, touch me and see, for a spirit doesn't have flesh and bones as you see that I have. It's It's an invitation to a new encounter. And this is very important that Jesus rose bodily. It's very important. If you continue on in the New Testament, end up in Romans, this guy named Paul writes, and he talks about this idea that if we were united to him in a death like his, so too we will be united to him in a life like his. And that life like his is a life that is resurrected with his body. It's a new body. That's what we receive in a relationship with God, is we will rise again with him. That's what we're going to sing about later this morning, that there is a resurrection that we will experience Part of it we experience here today. We can live in a new life. We can live like our life is really his. And there's a future realization of that truth where we will be risen bodily with Jesus because of what he's done right here. See, death couldn't hold him. I love that song. Death couldn't hold him. The veil tore before him. He silenced the boast of sin and of grave. 
That's what he did right there in that moment, defeating death once and for all. It's because of that that he's actually the name above all names. It's because of that that we get to live in that new reality. And the truth of this victory actually permeates the Christian life. It's from this position, a position recognizing that he has done what he said he would do, that we can actually be living proof, or we can actually have joy. And it's because we don't have to live from a position of defeat. We don't have to be defined by our defeat. We can be defined by his victory, by the victory that he can give us in those spaces that we experience. That's what he's done for you and for me as he speaks life and peace into each and every one of us. And so he invites them to touch him, which, which I still is hard to wrap my mind around. But do you know what they saw? They saw his scars. They saw holes in his wrists or his hands. They saw holes in his feet. John 20 tells us that that's what they saw. And I think Luke is strongly alluding to that. And we also know in Revelation that his scars will continue on through eternity. He kept his scars. What kind of God would do that? He came and put on flesh. He walked among us, living a perfect life, and then went through the most impossibly painful death you can imagine and kept the scars. That's incredible. It reminds me of a song that I used to sing when I was a kid. It was like the nails in your hand, the nails in your feet, they remind me how much you love me. The thorn on your brow, they show me how you bore so much shame to love me. And when the heavens pass away, still your scars will remain and forever they will say just how much you love me. It's true. And those scars are gonna remain for eternity. And when we're in heaven with Jesus, when we're face to face with him in that moment, we're gonna look upon him and see those scars and there's no way we can take credit for it for ourselves. Not a single ounce of it. It was all his blood. It was all his work. And that forever gives glory to God. We can't take any ownership for what happened. It was all him who was willing to go through that and then to experience that glory for eternity. How good is our God that he would do that and that he kept those scars? And so they look at him and they touch the scars. And I think what happens here is, is things start to click. And the reason why is because they start disbelieving for joy and we're marveling. This is the, what? This is incredible. Not only did they see him and hear him, but now they have touched him and they're in this moment of an encounter with Jesus where they don't have a category for it. There's no way for them to process it besides disbelieving for joy. You ever been in an experience like that where something was way too good to be true? I know I have. My wife married me. Hello. What? That's incredible. I can't believe she said yes. And here's what's even better. Around that whole situation, like our, our marriage and, and moving to, toward the wedding, it was so cool how God provided every single step of the way. And like, I've heard pastors talk about it. You know, they get up like, yeah, God sent a check in the mail. He did. What the heck? <laughs> I was like, oh, that happens for them. But that's not. And then somehow God kept providing time after time again. The entire wedding, it, we didn't even know if it was gonna be put together at the way that it was. But people, whether it was from the church or from our family, they started pitching in and helping out. People made our arbor. One person donated flowers. Another person took photography for us. And it was incredible. We loved it. Drew was able to do the ceremony for us. And God kept providing in little ways. And then, and then somebody paid for our entire honeymoon. What the heck? God was showing off in some incredible ways there. And I didn't have a way of understanding it, right, while this is happening. 
And what's so crazy to me is that stuff like this happens in our life where he does something in a way that you, you don't really know how to process it, but then we can forget it. I know I forget it. I know there's times when we're sitting there and we, you know, we check our mail and we're like, oh man, Sutter, dang. And yet we forget that he provided for us before and he's going to provide again. How many times do we do that in our lives? But here's what happens is when we are overcome with defeat, when that weighs on us, we don't have a way of understanding this kind of joy, right? And sometimes we actually miss it altogether. That's why I loved those I Saw Jesus Win videos. That was so cool. So many of you guys sent in those little like selfie videos. And it was great hearing God do big things, but also little things. Did you guys notice that in some of those videos? If you haven't seen it, we'll try to put it up soon. But God does things in so many ways through our lives that we often miss because we're so blinded by barriers in our life. We don't see him showing off. And so then after they're just kind of blown away and don't know what to say, Jesus is like, hey, so I was kind of busy these last three days. Do you guys have anything to eat? (laughs) And they eat together. I love it. I love what he does here. He sits down and has a meal with them. They eat some fish together. I don't want us to miss God's provision in this moment. He's provided for them in Jesus, and he's provided this very fish that they're eating right now. That's what we remind ourselves every time that you guys, like, maybe you pray before a meal or something. It's a reminder of the God's provision in our lives. And he's providing right here. And so they sit down and they eat together. And I love what Luke's doing here, because what Luke is doing is he's grounding the reality of the resurrection, It's one more proof for Theophilus. Theophilus is who the book of Luke was written to. In chapter one, we see that. And he says, I write to you, Theophilus, so that you might have certainty in the things that you have heard and been taught about Jesus. And I think that here in this text, he's kind of tying a loop on that idea of certainty. It's just one more evidence of him rising again. And I think at this moment, it really does begin to click for them. Now, this text, it kind of ends on a cliffhanger for us this morning. We're not going to say what happens next. You have to come next week. Um, or if you have a Bible, you can keep reading. I know, it's weird. But you can, you can read it. I'll give you guys a hint. Jesus is preparing them for something huge. He's preparing them for something big that they're going to need regular encounters with Jesus to be able to handle. And what we see is this group of defeated guys and ladies who were gathered together, this group of defeated people, they end up becoming the leaders of a movement that has radically changed this world and continues on till today called the Church of Jesus. That's what we do here this morning. That's what we do as we celebrate and we gather together to look at his word and to sing songs about his goodness, to take communion together or to to witness baptisms, to share in community with one another. We're celebrating that exact thing where God took their weakest moment of defeat. Could we agree that? That may have been their weakest. The moment when Peter betrays Jesus three times. The moment when they all desert him when he's being pulled away to the trial. They took their weakest moment of defeat and made that one of the greatest statements of grace and of victory that this world has ever known. And when we share that with people, even today, like on a Sunday morning in 2018, what it does is it brings people, men and women who are far from God, close because they see a God who redeems and a God who saves and a God who is willing to make peace on our behalf, on my behalf, on your behalf. That's the truth of what Luke is getting across here. It's the truth of the gospel. And it's that he really is real. 
It's actually true. That's what Luke wants Theophilus to know. And Theophilus is going to need it, man, because Theophilus was probably wealthy. He was probably Greek, all right? And if he was going to side with these Christians, probably be bad for business. Probably be bad for networking. And yet he's going to agree. And he's like, I, I want to be sure. And so Luke does this for him. He writes to him so that he would have certainty. And we see that certainty that he really is real. And so I think there's some implications that we can draw from this for us today. I think one of the big ones is that we can't let defeat define us. We can't let it define us. Because when we do that, we miss Jesus. We miss what he's doing. And sometimes, it's crazy, what he does is he takes that defeat in our life and he uses that as a moment of victory. That's what he did with the disciples and that's what I believe he does with us. So whether it's the job loss or whether it's the diagnosis or whether it's the marital issue or whatever it is that we're dealing with, what he can do is he can take that defeat and turn it into victory for his glory and for our joy. He can use any of it. So we can't let defeat define us. We can't let a growing attitude of pessimism or perfectionism or cynicism get in the way of us seeing God for who he really is. Now, they couldn't, they couldn't understand him showing up the first couple times for a number of reasons. But I think among the number one was their sense of defeat. I think that's exactly what the peace that he proclaimed to them, the peace that he spoke into them, was meant to combat. I think he wants to do that for us today. Another one is this. I think we need to remember the real risen Jesus. Can you remember that it's real? I can't tell you how many times I worship with my hands in my pockets. I'm not, I'm not talking about anybody here, but for me, like if I were, I, I kind of dawns on me, I'm like, Jesus rose from the dead. And I'm like, <laughs> but he really is real. He really did do what he said he was going to do. And I want to take a moment and talk to the skeptic in the room today. So if you're here and um, somebody made you come to Easter last week and then they somehow convinced you to come today, I'm glad you're here. But I want to take a minute and talk to you about this, this truth right here. It's this. Today, outside at the Connect Center, we have some books. They're called The Case for the Resurrection. It's a great book. It's a short book. I read it for the first time when I was 19 and I loved it. Um, it's written by a guy who, um, he would call himself an atheist journalist who was working at the Chicago Tribune, right? So what he did is he wanted to disprove the resurrection. He wanted to disprove the whole God thing. And so he started doing research and started studying and started trying to pull together this case against it. And every single alternative to the resurrection, he kept coming across. He was like, this makes no sense. This doesn't work. And he was dumbfounded by it. I'm not going to spoil the whole book for you, but I'll give you a couple. One of them that's pretty popular is this thing called the swoon theory. It's the swoon theory. Maybe you've heard of this one where it's like, okay, well, Jesus didn't really all the way die on the cross. He just kind of like fell asleep, then they put him in a tomb, and then after three days, he was strong enough to get out. Really? The Romans were professional executioners. That was their job. <laughs> They're the best fighting force in the world at that time. Jesus actually died. We believe that as Christians. We hold to that as Christians. And we believe that he actually rose from the dead. Swoon theory doesn't really hold up. Or maybe if you like soap operas, you believe in the evil twin theory. Like somehow they hit him for like 33 years and then they're like, ta-da, he's fine. 
Or maybe this one, maybe the disciples, they figured it out. They like kind of snuck up on the Roman guards and knocked away the, the rock and they took around the body and had like weekend at Bernie's for a couple days. <laughs> they stole the body in Matthew. Here's what I love about the gospel of Matthew. In Matthew, it says this, that he records the, the rulers going up to the guards and paying them to tell people that that's what happened. That's in the end of the gospel of Matthew. The Bible even admits that that was a theory that people had. But really, these guys who were so betrayed and so defeated and hiding in a locked room figured out how to overcome a group of Roman guards and steal the body and convince all these people about it and then die for it. Unanimously, every one of them was willing to die for it as a martyr. If you go through it, John's the only guy who wasn't fully martyred, but they dipped him in oil, burning oil. These are men who were radically changed by an encounter with Jesus and the risen Jesus. So there's more in the book. You can read it. I'd love for you to grab it. It's out there. It's purple. It's on the Connect Center. But my encouragement to you would be to, to look at the evidence, to look at the alternatives. Did Jesus really rise? Or could it be one of these other, other things? I mean, the gospel records him coming to women first. In the first century, women's testimonies were not admissible in court. Why the heck, if you're trying to prove a point or come up with a myth, would you go to women first to do that? But we know Jesus did that. Jesus appeared first to Mary Magdalene, appeared first to them at the tomb. They're the first ones to hear about it. We can trust that he really is real. And when we do that, what happens is it begins to change our life. When we allow that reality to sink into who we are, what happens is it begins to transform the way that we look at everything. Suddenly, things that we encounter on a daily basis stop just being the mundane, and they stop just being the confusing, but they become an opportunity for victory or an opportunity to share the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And that brings us to our last idea, and it's this, that we need an encounter with Jesus. We need it. We need this moment where we're actually experiencing who he is. And, and I know it kind of sounds a little spacey, but let me, let me reassure you. This is a quote from John Piper. He says this, God is always doing 10,000 things in your life at any given moment, and you're aware of three of them. And then his grace, we like to add on, and that's if we're good. I'm barely aware of three of them. And yet God is always active in our lives, and he's always moving in our lives, and most of the times we can't see it. And I think the reason why is because we allow that defeat to stack up, and we let it blur our vision for what God's actually up to. And so what we need is an encounter with the risen Jesus. What he promises in his word is that if you seek him, you will find him. If you ask for him, he will give himself to you. It's a promise that he made in the Sermon on the Mount. That that would be who he was. That would be who he is. And that's true today. But if we seek for that, we would receive that. And we see these men who were totally defeated, they were radically changed by that encounter, weren't they? And I could think of many people who are in this room today, who were in the room earlier, who are gonna be here at 515, who their lives have been radically changed by an encounter with Jesus. And it may not have been showing up saying, hey, touch my scars. But you know what? It probably showed up in a moment of defeat. It probably showed up in a moment of brokenness where they began to see him for who he really is and they saw that that changed everything. And maybe the reason why some of us, we feel joyless or feel dead inside or whatever it is, 
is because we've yet to encounter the risen Jesus. We haven't openly received him and said, yes, God, do something in my life, please, and been open enough to allow him to do that and to see that. And that's what we're all invited to do. And what we can do is we can purpose ourselves to do that. I think it's really helpful to put yourself in situations where you need God to show up, to be serving outside of your comfort zone, to be loving outside of your comfort zone, to be, to be giving of yourself to others in a, in a way that actually kind of demands an encounter from Jesus to be able to sustain it. That's what he does with us, is, is that when we take those steps out, when we're willing to try to be the living proof, even if we don't really know exactly what the phrase means, he meets us in those places. It's when you like wake up at 5.30 a.m. and that's nobody's happy time except for like five of you in here. But you wake up at 5.30 a.m. and you show up at the Starbucks and you have the conversation with the barista who says, you say, hey, how was, how's your morning so far? And they're like, well, my kid got sick at 2 a.m. and I can barely function right now. Then you can enter in empathetically to that moment and say, oh, I'm so sorry. I can totally empathize with that. Man, having a sick family member can, can really weigh on the day, huh? Just have a conversation. And what you start to do in that moment is you are incarnating Christ. It's a fancy way for you. Like you're being Jesus with skin on. You're ministering to people in that way. And I know it seems basic, but what you're doing is you're building a reputation for the gospel that can lead to a conversation about Jesus and would lead ultimately to a confrontation with Jesus himself where they would encounter him. That's why we do what we do. That's why Little League is like not that bad. That's why we're able to, to go into the grocery stores. That's why we do what we do at our workplace. It's not just for the paycheck or just so that our kids get into the right schools or whatever. It's actually for the gospel. It's actually to be living proof wherever we go. And so what I want to do next is let's all stand on our feet. And what we're going to do is we're going to worship together. And this song, this song talks about the resurrection. It talks about the resurrection that we all inevitably will experience And it talks about the resurrection that God does in our lives that's only possible through his son, Jesus. And so this morning as we worship him, my hope would be for you that you would lay your defeat down at his feet. That you'd be willing to drop it at the altar and say, God, I don't know what to do with this, but I know you can do something with it. And he's faithful to meet us in those places. So I'm gonna pray for us, then we'll worship together. God, you are so good and so worthy of our trust that you would meet us in these places and that you would be willing to die on the cross and to make peace with the Father so that we might have a relationship with you, so that we might have joy in you that can only come from you. And Jesus, I pray that as we worship you, that your spirit would just move in our hearts and we would be willing to lay down our defeat on your altar. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.